Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. I've got a whole new Alaskan episode for you tonight. But first, before we get into it, I wanted to play a quick promo from one of my favorite podcast people's new show. So check it out. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants? Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. I certainly hope that you'll give her show a listen. She's brilliant and hilarious and was previously the co-host of the fantastic show Bloody Murder, which sadly no longer is making new episodes. But I'm excited to hear her talking about crime again. Now let's get into our episode. As usual, it's brought to you by my wonderful and generous patrons. And I wanted to give a big shout out to my newest patron, Ginger and Charm. On a positive note, I'm recording today's episode in my newly completed recording studio, also known as my work shed, which I have been slowly covering entirely in foam panels. So hopefully the recording quality is much better this episode. This place turned out to be super cozy. It's like an extra room in my house that's not connected, so it's fantastic. On today's episode, I'll be discussing a disappearance that made national headlines and captured the imagination of people throughout the world. I clearly remember when it happened and just how much it bothered me. And over the years, I've repeatedly Googled to see if there was any new news. But nine years on, this disappearance remains a tragic mystery for which there may never be a resolution. The sources I used were several articles from a variety of publications, including Runner's World and Outside Magazine. 
I will link all of the articles I used in the show notes for those interested, rather than spending five minutes listing them off. When someone goes missing while hiking a mountain in Alaska, it definitely makes headlines, but is usually not much of a surprise or mystery. And sadly, many of these types of disappearances are only in the public eye for a day or two, if that. The reality is that countless numbers of people have gone missing in the Alaskan wilderness over the years. And with hundreds of thousands of square miles full of mountains, lakes, glaciers, and endless seas of trees, often these people are never found. In fact, Alaska has its own version of the Bermuda Triangle with the uninspired name of the Alaska Triangle. The three points of the triangle are Anchorage, Juneau, and Barrow, and it encompasses a huge amount of space. According to estimates, over the years, around 16,000 people have gone missing in this area. And while many people want to blame it on paranormal entities or mythical creatures, the reality is that the vast majority of the triangle is unpopulated wilderness, and too often wannabe outdoorsmen are blinded by the majesty of the untainted wild, and they underestimate the many hidden dangers lurking within. However, the mountain disappearance I will be discussing today is of a different ilk entirely, and it is the context that makes this story so curious and confounding. Because the mountain in question is not in some remote wilderness, it's actually right in a town, just a few blocks from downtown. And the man who disappeared was running in a mountain race on a course that had been trod by several hundred runners that day before him in an event that had thousands upon thousands of spectators. Seward, Alaska is a small fishing town, approximately 120 miles south of Anchorage and nestled in Resurrection Bay, which is an inlet of the steep cold waters of the Gulf of Alaska. On the other side, Seward is snug up against the Kenai Mountain Range. The town is named after Secretary of State William Seward, who in 1867 organized the purchase of the Alaska Territory from the Russians for two cents an acre. At the time, the purchase became known as Seward's Folly because many believed that Alaska was a big chunk of useless land. Of course, Seward's naysayers would be proven wrong just a few decades later when gold was found in Alaska, not to mention the millions of dollars in oil and other natural resources that have been discovered since. Seward is an adorable and primely located small town with a population around 2,700, most of whom work in the commercial fishing industry and tourism. It's a very popular tourist destination especially in the summer, for people who are looking to go on whale watching tours, taking fishing charters so they can have a new fish picture for their Tinder profile, taking a tour of the world famous Kenai Fjords National Park, or looking to enjoy land-based activities such as hiking in the nearby mountains. It's probably one of my two favorite places in Alaska, and I have spent countless weekends there throughout my life usually fishing on my dad's boat, the Miss Ariel, and camping on the beach. If you ever decide to visit Alaska, I definitely recommend coming in summer 
and Seward is a must visit. But if you hate crowds, you should absolutely not go during 4th of July festival. So many people come for the 4th that the town's population briefly swells immensely from a cozy 2700 up to a staggering 20,000 to 30,000 people some years. And trust me, the town is way too small to comfortably handle that many people. Walking around downtown on the 4th of July is like trying to wade through a mosh pit. Many people show up just to visit the street fair and check out the fireworks over the harbor. But for others, the main draw is the annual Mount Marathon race. Despite the name, it's actually only a 5K. But the actual race course is the reason that this event has become known around the world as a grueling test of endurance. As legend goes, back in 1909, the Alaskan Gold Rush days, two prospectors made a bet about whether or not a person could get up to the summit of Mount Marathon and back down in less than an hour. The game was afoot and they found a runner willing to do it. Word spread and locals got excited, so they made it into a big event taking place on the 4th of July. It was a huge hit, even though the first runner did take slightly over an hour to finish, which is actually pretty impressive if you think about what type of footwear he must have been wearing. Then just a few years later was the first official Mount Marathon foot race in 1915, and it's been going on ever since. It became such an integral part of the town's culture that the mountain was named Marathon because of the race, which is obviously not a marathon, so it's a little confusing, but I guess it's a thought that counts. For the first several decades, only about a dozen or so runners competed, and they were generally all men. But finally, in 85, a second race was added for us delicate lady folk. And then later, a race was added for junior competitors, aged 7 to 17. 2021 was the 93rd annual race, which makes it one of the longest running, pun very intended, foot races in the U.S. And it is the number one longest running mountain foot race. In the last 106 years, there have only been a couple of times that the years have been skipped usually for major crises. The last recent skipped year was 2020, for reasons I'm sure you can figure out. The all-time fastest participant in the race was a man named Bill Spencer, who completed it in 43 minutes, 21 seconds, back in 1981. But the average competitor will take around an hour and a half, maybe longer, to finish. It is considered to be the toughest 5K in the world. And if you know any runners and, or climbers, you know they love a good challenge, pushing their body to the limit. And so probably partially because of the infamously tough course, it's an extremely popular race and people come from all over the world to compete. There's a strict limit on number of entrants and first timers have to put their name into a lottery to get a chance to compete. And the race goes like this. The starting line is downtown. Runners head a few blocks until they get to the mountain and then the fun really begins. Runners will be gaining approximately 3,000 feet in elevation 
over 0.9 miles on a mountain with an average incline of 34 degrees, parts of which are much steeper. Parts are actually so steep that you're literally climbing on all fours on a nearly sheer rock face. In other areas, you're running through thick brush and trees on either side. Loads of devil club, devil's club, and if you know what that is, you know. But probably the worst part is the large swath of loose shale in which it is very easy to lose your footing, especially when you're flying back down the mountain. There's also lots and lots of snow and icy patches runners have to go through on the descending course. Yes, even in July, we have snow. We just can't fucking get rid of it. <laughs> Along with many steep cliff edges, including one over a waterfall right at the end. While there is a race route, there's no specifically designed path or even markers. Runners can choose which route to take depending on what kind of obstacles they feel like tackling. I was a runner for about a decade and a half, beginning when I joined the cross country team in high school at age 15. But for some reason, a month before I was going to actually start training, with absolutely no physical fitness, training, or level of endurance, I made the masochistic decision to compete in the junior division in Mount Marathon. It was extremely tough. It was beyond tough. First off, I had to wear knee-high socks taped around my knees, and I had to tape my shoes closed around my feet to prevent any of the hundreds of small pieces of shale I'd be trudging through ending up in my shoes. 23 years later, I have a very clear memory of just how physically horrible I felt afterward and how absolutely filthy I was, but also how amazing I felt inwardly that I had completed it. I'm like 99.9% .9 sure I was the last finisher in the junior division, but the important part is that I finished, goddammit. I mean, I didn't really have a choice. It was either that or make my new home on the mountain, but still. My point in telling you this is not only to humble brag, but also to explain why this particular story hit me so hard. I've been there, I've climbed that mountain, and I've been that last person trudging down when the winners are already halfway back to Anchorage. And that's why this particular story it just really hit me in the feels. I, it just, ooh, I had a hard time. But that's enough context. Some might say too much. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Summer in Alaska can be very lovely, at least for a month or two, maybe eight weeks if we're lucky. <laughs> it usually doesn't get hotter than 80 to 85 at the most and it's more likely to hover around 60 to 70 degrees on the average day. I've experienced many lovely summer days in Seward over the years, but then every so often you'll have a day where it seems as though the weather gods have forgotten what month it is, and suddenly it's rainy, it's 40 degrees, and you're freezing in a soaking wet tent. July 4th, 2012 was just such a day. It was very windy and drizzly, and the temperature was hovering in the upper 40s and low 50s all day. It had rained quite a bit the night before, so parts of the course on the mountain were very muddy. Alaska had experienced a record snowfall that year, 
the remains of which still lingered on the high parts of the mountain, several feet deep in some spots. And as if that wasn't enough of a challenge, there was also a heavy fog that had captured the summit in its embrace and held it there throughout much of the day. Prior to that year's race, a former race director named Chuck Eckerd had written an opinion letter to the Seward paper stating that he thought they should cut the number of runners down to prevent overcrowding on the dangerous course and to ensure that the competitors were all experienced and up to the challenge. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now however the race had only grown exponentially in popularity over the years with more and more people every year wanting to take part. And because of that, instead of cutting the numbers down in 2012, they actually ended up allowing there to be several dozen more entrants in every category, thus making the mountain race even more crowded and dangerous. And it would seem that Eckert's opinion would be proven right, because while there had been many different types of horrible injuries over the years, nothing extremely serious had ever really happened until 2012. And that year, something serious happened, not just once, but three times. And oddly enough, the order of the events matched the progression in levels of seriousness. Firstly, during the women's race, a 34-year-old runner named Penny Asman slipped and fell and started to slide on her butt towards a 30-foot-tall cliff edge. Luckily, she had time to cry out, and some nearby spectators, including an EMT, quickly rushed up to the drop-off and were able to help break her fall. She did end up with a lacerated liver and spent several days in the hospital. Next, in the men's race, a runner in his 40s named Matthew Kinney was at that exact same cliff edge, which was just a few minutes from the finish line, when he toppled over the cliff with no one to break his fall. This resulted in a broken skull, broken legs, and a traumatic brain injury. He ended up being in a coma for quite a while and spent eight months in the hospital overall. These two incidents both resulted in happy endings, eventually. Penny made a full recovery, and Matthew ended up recovering after a while and actually ended up running the race again just two years later. 
But for the third serious incident of the day, there would be no real ending, happy or otherwise. Just a lingering question mark where the denouement should be. Paul Lemaitre, who went by his middle name Michael, and whom I will refer to as such, so as not to offend your ears by my butchering of the French language repeatedly, was a 66-year-old married father and grandfather who had never run the race before, but who had gotten lucky winning a spot in that year's lottery. He was a very active guy and in great shape. He had lived in Alaska since the 70s and loved trying out all of the different activities the state had to offer. And he had done his fair share of camping and hiking throughout the state. He was no babe in the woods. And he was very excited to get a chance to race up the mountain. He traveled to Seward with his wife, Peggy, the day before the race. And every year there's a safety meeting all participants have to attend the night before. Runners are briefed and they're informed that they're running the, ra running the race at their own risk. They're told that they shouldn't be taking part in the race unless they have climbed the mountain before and surveyed the course, at least once, but preferably more. Race organizer Carol Fink says her personal suggestion is to complete the course at least a dozen times prior to joining the competition. The runners are also shown a safety video highlighting dangers they might encounter, along with a grisly montage of different injuries that have occurred over the years. The race day dawned to terrible weather, but Seward was still spectacularly packed with people enjoying the street fair and getting excited to watch the races. If us Alaskans ever let bad weather stop us, we'd never get anything done. Although racers were probably happy they wouldn't have to deal with uncomfortably warm weather while they would be working up quite a sweat. Michael woke and donned a black headband along with a black t-shirt and shorts. Unfortunately for the male runners, they would have to kill a lot of time before their turn. The three races are each broken into different waves, which will hit the start line a few minutes apart from each other in order to prevent too much crowding on the mountain. The junior race goes first, bright and early, then the women are midday, then the men's race was at 3 p.m. Michael's wife, Peggy, walked him to the starting line until it was his turn at 3.10. She kissed him just before his wave took off down the road, heading towards the mountain. As with most organized foot races, there were loads of volunteers all along the course trail for safety and to provide moral support and water to racers. Thus, there were a handful of volunteers at the turnaround spot atop the mountain, watching an endless stream of haggard and sometimes bloodied participants reach the apex and head towards the descent. One of these people was a man named Tom Walsh, who had worked as a timekeeper for the race for over a decade. Walsh and the others had been waiting around for quite a while since they had last had a runner go by, who had mistakenly told them he was in last place. 
they decided to wait around further until eventually they decided to pack it up and head down the mountain. Most of the other volunteers had left their posts already because it had been a few hours by then since the winner of the men's race had finished. As the group was getting ready to walk down, Walsh spotted a runner coming just a few hundred feet shy of the rock that marked the turnaround spot. He was wearing black shorts and a t-shirt and a black headband. He looked tired and was moving slow, but didn't appear to be in any need of any help. And he seemed to be in good spirits. He called out to Walsh, asking him if he could still finish the race. At that time, there was no official cutoff, so Walsh said yes. He made a note of the guy's bib number, 548, and as he continued to head down the mountain, he radioed race officials, informing them there was one more runner coming who should be at the finish line within the next hour to hour and a half. Walsh could never have guessed in that moment that this would become something that would haunt him forever because he was the last person to ever see Michael Lemaitre. And what happened next is a puzzle that will, in all probability, never be solved. Based on the time that Michael had been spotted just shy of the turnaround point at the summit, he was expected to cross the finish line sometime between 7 and 7.30. His wife was down below, anxiously waiting for hours watching the minutes tick by as her fear grew and grew. And when he was still not back by 8 p.m., she spoke with race officials who contacted Seward Fire Department for help. Within an hour, a large search had begun. And over the next several days, dozens of people, numbering upwards of 70 or more from several different groups, conducted a very thorough search of the mountain. This included helicopters using infrared technology, volunteers from the Alaska Air National Guard, the Alaska Mountain Rescue Group, trained search dogs and their handlers, and many others. The official search went on for about 10 days before it was called off due to them having found absolutely no trace of him and the weather had gotten really bad. Unofficially, the search continued, with many residents regularly hiking the mountains looking for him. But absolutely no sign of him has ever been found in nine years. There are many theories, the most likely of which is that he doesn't, didn't know he was supposed to turn around at that big rock and kept going upward setting in motion a string of events which left him lost in the mountains without any water. As I mentioned at the beginning, the worst part about this is that the town was right there. He wasn't off in the middle of nowhere, and the race course is mostly right out in the open, so that viewers down below can watch the majority of the race from right at sea level. But since Michael was so far behind the pack, and the volunteers had abandoned their posts, there was no one looking up at the mountain any longer. No one that could see what may have happened. What may have been Michael's fatal mistake was his inexperience. 
Not in hiking up mountains, but that mountain specifically. While I mentioned earlier that at the safety meeting the night before, officials make sure everyone there has explored the course, the thing is, Michael never had. It's impossible to say whether or not he actually heard the statement made during the safety thing, whether he purposely lied by omission. But the thing is, even in the most extreme of conditions, there's still an innate sense of security in joining a race like this, as opposed to, say, hiking the mountain by yourself any other day of the year. Knowing that there's dozens of volunteers all over the mountain might give someone the nerve to race up a mountain they've never seen before, thinking that at least if they get injured or turned around, there will be other people around to help. Most people probably wouldn't join a race like this if they knew that all of the volunteers might pack up and leave you all alone up there. When you pay money to participate in something like this, there's an expectation that you'll get the same race experience whether you're in first place or last. And that includes water stops along the way and volunteers waiting up top to cheer you on. After all, running in last place is still running. I can't imagine how awful Michael must have felt as he exhaustedly neared the summit only to see that the workers there didn't even wait for him to come by. How he felt to find himself alone on the mountain. It just makes me sick to think about, frankly. And I have to hope that whatever happened to him, it was fast. And I hope someone finds him someday and brings him home. A lot of rules were changed after the tragic 2012 race. There are now cutoff times for making it to certain spots along the race, and the runners that don't make the cutoff will be disqualified. Runners now also have to sign a document confirming that they have completed the course prior to race day. And lastly, and most important to this story, there are now volunteers whose job it is to wait for the last runner of each race and follow them back down. I personally feel like that's something that should have already been in place without something like this having to happen, but that's just me. After the massive search ended and nothing had been found, Michael's adult daughter, Marianne, flew up to Alaska from Salt Lake City and spent about a month looking everywhere she could on the mountain with the help of many locals. But after weeks of doing this, she finally reached a point where she knew she had to give up. But before leaving the mountain for good, she went up to the big rock at the summit turnaround and engraved a message for her father, which simply read, I love you, Dad. <laughs> 